breaks the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You would lay down your life. That I would be set free.
good morning, Carpenter's Way. Once you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning. Great. Good morning, Carpenter's Way. And for those of you watching on the internet, good morning, and we're glad you're joining us today. Grab your worship guides. There's some stuff going on. I want you. To, I want to highlight this morning, but we are awfully glad to have you here around you. There's lots of guests here with us this morning, so make sure when we end our service, you look for somebody you don't recognize and shake their hands and hug their necks and see if you can answer any questions for them and uh, take them to Bible study or whatever. But we're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening in or watching, uh, either on our podcast or on, on the internet, and uh, hope we can be an encouragement to you. We are in the beginning of a 20, uh, well, we're on our 22nd week. 
which puts us in the first year of Jesus' ministry in a walk through. Uh, we're trying to discover together the biblical Jesus Christ. Who is this man is the name of the series. And like I said, we're in our 22nd week and of a 524-week study of this, and then we're going to start over. Uh, I'm just kidding. But what we're doing is we're taking the Gospels, and we're trying to harmonize them, put them together, and uh, chronologically go through the ministry of Jesus Christ uh, from its beginning uh, all the way through to the crucifixion and resurrection um, to try to discover not who the Baptist Jesus is or the evangelical Jesus, but who he said he was. So we're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. This is our second week of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, believe it or not, we're going to get through three and a half chapters today together. So uh, buckle your seatbelts. Lunch will be served around 3 o'clock. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, this is an exciting week because we have been, um, well, take time to read your worship guide. we got Promotion Sunday coming up. That's when our children and our students go to the next class group. Um, and information on activities, student ministry and activities going on. Uh, you can read all of that. But I do want to highlight something else that's happening this week. As you know, we have had a month full of camps where our kids have gone and our children, our students, uh, and we've seen great ministry take place there. But now it's we turn our eyes to international missions. And next week, we have two different groups going to two different places across the globe. We're sending a team to Guatemala. They leave on Saturday. And uh, there's, a, there's a needs list in the worship guide if you'd like to help them gather things that will help them minister. Um, but also take that and... and um, Put it on your, uh, on your table in the kitchen so you pray for these folks. They leave on Saturday. This Friday, though, um, our Amazon team leaves, and we actually have a list of the people going from Carpenter's Way as well as the team that's coming from up north. So please, uh, from Arkansas, please be praying for them. And uh, when we pray for offering in a few minutes, I'm going to have all those people stand, and we're going to pray for those going on both the Guatemala and the Amazon trip. Uh, as you pray for them, seek the Lord as if he'd have you go next year. Uh, these are very important trips. It affects everything to meet believers in other places and evangelize. Both of these trips are geared toward helping missionaries that are on site present the gospel in these areas. So it's very, very exciting, but we want to ask you to be in prayer for that. So um, actually, I'm going to go ahead. If you're going to either the Amazon or Guatemala, would you stand, please? We want to see who you are. We've got a couple big trips, and we want you to be praying for them. Um, I'm going to uh, uh, ask you uh, to remain standing as I pray. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward as we prepare for our offering. And uh, as they come forward, I want to remind you, if you're visiting, this is not for you. This is for those who, who attend regularly. And uh, uh, we're just glad to have you here this morning. We don't want you distracted by money. God is providing through his people who attend regularly. Thanks for being with us. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the ministry you've given here, us here in Angelina County. I thank you for the opportunities we have at our workplaces and where we're playing with our kids and our grandkids and uh, when we eat out, that we have to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But Lord, this is not an American message. It's a global message. And Father, you, uh, you've asked us not only to support international missions, which we do uh, heartily, but you've asked us to go as well. And, and I thank you... Uh, Father, I thank you for the Overbees and the Hudsons who are willing to take teams uh, to these locations, the Overbees to Guatemala, uh, the Hudsons to Brazil with Amazon Outreach. I thank you for the ministries that they have in the heart for this. We pray, Father, that you would sustain them as they lead these teams. We pray that you would encourage them. We pray for those that are going, Father, that you would protect them.
that they would see and experience you in a totally new way. I pray that they would fall in love with people um, so that when they vote, when they speak, when they talk publicly, when they hear of these nations, their hearts would be touched, that we would be compassionate, Father, that we would be a people who, are, who understand our citizenship is first and foremost in the kingdom of God and secondly in this country. So, Father, I pray for your blessings. I pray for fruitfulness. I pray that you would overwhelm them with your presence. Father, I thank you for our other ministries as well. We don't want to forget them. I thank you for the ministry of our jail ministry, and I just heard from Dickie who oversees that, Father, that we had five people come to Christ last Sunday as a result of that ministry, five new members of your family, five people who a thousand years from this morning will be worshiping you in heaven and not separated from you. And I thank you for Dickie and his team that you would bless them, Lord Jesus. Bless us all as we go out and help us to remember that we are the children of the Most High and we carry the message of our family everywhere we go. So we commit this day to you. We commit this week to you. We commit these mission trips to you. Father, we pray you'd bless us. Now speak to us as we turn our eyes back on our ministries. In Jesus' name, amen. passes if you want to stand and worship with us you're more than welcome once a sinner now I'm clean once condemned now I'm made free he turned my dark
Praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Jesus Christ. 
To Jesus I surrender all To Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him In His presence daily Here 
your feet I bow come take me now I give it all to you do what you finish that prayer. Lord, we mean it. We mean it. We surrender it all to you. Now come take us. Father, this morning, as we get into your word, we need understanding. This story, this message is so confused by so many Christians. Are we working our way into heaven? Are we sustaining it? What are you saying? So I ask you, Father, that the words of Mark and man would fade away so that the words of God would endure forever. We love you. Bless our children as they have their programs. I pray for the other churches in this community that are opening the word of God this morning. Timber Creek and Father First Baptist Church and um, First Nazarene, we pray you would fill these men and these women that are teaching this morning with your Holy Spirit that your people would wake up and surrender their lives to you that they would seek you above everything else that they want, that we would seek you above everything else that we want. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray this, amen. You may be seated if you're not, well, <laughs> you are, some of you raise. My eyes were closed because that's the proper prayer. You gotta do that or Jesus doesn't hear you. <laughs> just, I'm just kidding, do not email me. My name is Jeff at cwbc.org. All right, Matthew 5, I want to jump right into it. One day as he, Jesus, saw the crowds gathering, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples, and, and for those of you who weren't with us last week, not the 12 that you know as the apostles, but his disciples, and we know this from later in the text, and um, uh, this, these are the people who are claiming the masses that are saying, I'm going to follow this rabbi. This is the guy that I want to be part of his team. I want, to, I want to learn from him. I want to do life and God his way. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Verse 3, God blesses those who are poor and real, in spirit, the Greek says, and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This was an awesome start to what we now know as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was, was teaching uh, as mentioned last week when we studied this text together, you literally followed your rabbi around. Um, you're going to hear people say that the reason Jesus taught in parables is so people could understand, and he was a, he was a gifted, unique speaker. While some of that is true, and we'll get into the parables a little later, the, the, the fact remains that Jesus was a pretty traditional rabbi. The things that made him st stand out, though, was that he claimed to be God, and on top of it, he validated it by his miraculous acts. When a rabbi uh, would walk, his disciples would follow, masses of them. People would just follow him, and then when he was ready to teach, he would sit down somewhere, and they would gather around him, and that's what's happening here. This, this wasn't as much a sermon as it was a lesson. You know this because in Jesus' teaching, for instance, uh, you'll hear him talk about, you know, look at the lilies of the field, you know, how, how my father adorns them. Or he'll say, see the wheat is, is uh, white unto harvest. Those passages that you're familiar with, if you were, it wasn't like Jesus was teaching in the synagogue those days. They're walking and they're looking at wheat in a field and he's talking to them about that wheat. That is very traditional Mideastern teaching. That's still how they teach to this day. And Jesus is just doing that. 
They're traveling, they're walking, because being the disciple of a rabbi was not just about filling their head with information, but it was about living like him. Your job as a disciple of a rabbi was to take the message and truth that that rabbi taught and multiply it. That should sound familiar. It's called discipleship. It's what we do, or it's what the church should be doing, and that is carrying on the ministry of Jesus. As he gave it to the 12, the 12 gave it to another 12, and those 12 gave it to another, and they cascaded down until we find ourselves in 2019 where we are heirs to the message. That was two weeks ago lesson together. We spent that together. You are not just waiting to die and go to heaven. You are the messengers, the heirs to the message of Jesus Christ. And these people claim to be followers of his. They were disciples. So they sit down and they lean in to hear him teach. There's no microphones. There are hundreds probably here this day. They must have loved how he began. Because just as it's the desire of everybody today to make sure those who are religiously interested that when they die, they go to be with God in heaven. In other words, they don't go to hell. The concern of the Jewish mind was that he get to inherit the kingdom of heaven. They, they didn't worry so much about hell um, as we keep going. Jesus actually talked more about hell than he did heaven. Um, but you need to understand that our concept of hell comes out of the, uh, the visuals that Jesus gives them. For instance, when they're walking through Jerusalem, he would talk about the trash heap outside that was constantly burning, and people would take their trash there. And he would talk about the unquenching fire of separation from God. And it's out of that that we get our vision of hell, where the worm never dies. Jesus talked a lot about hell, but the thing that concerned the Jewish mind wasn't so much the, the, the fire as we have been taught by evangelists, but the Jews were concerned about not being with Jehovah, about not going into his kingdom, not participating in the most dominant nationalistic thought in the world. They wanted all of that. So their concern was, how do you inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus began with something that would have turned them on like crazy. God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That was a wonderful start and a terrible start because Jesus just said nothing about the Jewish religion. It said about God. You need God. But he didn't stop there. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Most of these people probably were outcasts from Judaism. Many of them had been healed by Jesus. They had mourned much of their life. That fit their agenda. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Ah, we're a humble lot, aren't we? They like that. They got that. Followers of Jesus actually were rebellious against the Jewish system and were outcasts, so these things fit them. The problem with Jesus is he never stops when we're comfortable, is it? Isn't that true? And he continued. Verse 6. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for. Uh, the New Living says justice. The Greek says righteousness. Many of your other versions say righteousness. It's a way better translation. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This begins to be a problem for the Jews because they didn't hunger for righteousness. They hungered for the kingdom of heaven. They hungered for a national win. They hungered to be the people that ruled the world. Verse 7 was an equally problematic. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If you spend much time around Jews, it was 10 times worse back then. They're not a very merciful people. And these people were no exception. They wanted Jesus to rise up against what they saw as a personal offense. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Let's just ignore that one and move on. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Work for peace. Oh, the peace of Jerusalem, of course. Not the peace of the world. The problem is Jesus Christ is talking about peace. Peacemakers. 
God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That really had to taste bad. And Jesus doubles down on it. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. <laughs> Our rabbi's a little unhinged. Be very glad. Now he's downright been drinking too much of the wine. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So I get heaven. Okay. The opening statement must have been both, ex both exciting and disconcerting to his followers. Because like us, they want Jesus to call them by name and say, Mark Wilkie, you get heaven. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he paints a picture of what the man or woman looks like who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Leading many of his followers to think, that's me. I hope. You see, people haven't changed. People's concerns are the same. Technology has changed. Nationalistic uh, significance or the nation you're a part of has changed. But people's desire is the same. I want heaven and comfort. And that's not what Jesus came to bring. In the same way that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's control in your life, and I want to say that again, it's called fruit of the Spirit because it isn't what we strive for, it's what we are when the Spirit is controlling our life. You've you got to get this, you guys. We have got to get our minds around this um, because most of us, are, are, most of our lives have been taught the fruit of the Spirit in five weeks and, and the pastor goes through each one of them and teaches you how to have the fruit of the Spirit. If you are taught how to have the fruit of the Spirit, then it's plastic fruit. You, you can create plastic fruit. You can be happy and not have joy. People of the world can long to be like you without you knowing Jesus. The problem with Christianity and Judaism is it mimics the truth and sometimes looks like it. But the, the fact is, if the Holy Spirit is in control of our life as the children of God, Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence that He exists. The evidence according to the New Testament that you are a child of God is not whether you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer at VBS or went to church your whole life or are a member, but it's whether or not the fruit of the Spirit is exhibited in your life. Well, I don't like that because it's, it's much more nebulous. And frankly, I don't really live for God that much, so the fruit isn't present. Then you have every reason to fear hell. I, I just want to get that out there. Just to be clear, if you are depending on a moment in time, a baptism, a, an event that happened in your life, to, to, to be confident in your eternity, just because you prayed a prayer or something, but your life has not been transformed, then it isn't a God act. It's a you act. And that's part of the problem with the modern church today. The modern church keeps answering the question, what must you do to be saved? And the truth is, salvation is an act of God. We respond to what Jesus did on the cross, and it tells us in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit comes in, seals us into eternity, and he begins the process, Ephesians 2 says, of transforming us into the image of his Son. And I, I know that that's more nebulous and it's scary, but I gotta tell you, that is the gospel Jesus taught. That's the gospel Jesus taught, and that's what's going on here. In fact, if you think that I'm crazy, I'm not Baptist enough, look at the next verse, verse 13. Jesus looks at them and says, you are the salt of the earth. And when he says you, I think he's talking about you Jews. So now Jesus is a racist because he referred to a group of people as you. But sorry, that was a political point. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Last year, we went through the Old Testament. We've been walking through this stuff. What good is it? If salt has lost its flavor, can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. 
The Hebrew people were given the task by God from the Old Testament to be the salt of the earth. They were anything, unfortunately, but salty, though. They had chosen to be a religious, nationalistic body who wanted to achieve God's promises of greatness, but in their own power. Instead of leaning into God and simply obeying the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law he had set up at Mount Sinai with them, they decide to do it all in their own power. And if you've been reading the Old Testament with me, which Ezekiel's really tough. The, around you, there was about 25 people that laughed. That's because we're reading Bible together in a year. I thought Leviticus was rough. Oh, man, Ezekiel's... I mean... How many times can these people do this over and over again? And is God rough on that guy? Or what? That's another discussion for another day, I know. But, but the truth is, the problem with the Old Testament, the reason why most of us get bored is because it's the same thing over and over again. God calls out to these people. He calls them to himself. They repent, and an hour later, they're doing what they were doing before. And you get tired of it. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, how could they do this? And the answer is because they wanted to do godliness in their own power. That, that's really the truth. And what scares me as I read this story of these Jews is I think most Christians do too. I think most of us want to do it in our own power. We really don't want to be, we don't want to be completely surrendered because what would God do? And I got to warn you, it may be rough, but there's no other way to meet God except through God. We'll get to that in a moment. He's telling them that, 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 that you guys were the salt of the earth. You were supposed to be the salt, but you, you know, if you lose, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be trampled on. It's good to melt ice and to be walked on, but it is not going to draw people. It's not tasty. And that had happened to the Jews. The nation that was supposed to be seen as blessed by God and flourishing through supernatural activity, that's what God promised them who was supposed to draw people to their God, who were supposed to be the salt of the earth, were now relegated to slave status, a subgroup in the world's evil that had been trampled down by dominating powers from the Philistines to the Babylonians to the Persians and the Greeks. And even at the moment Jesus is preaching, this is the Romans. Remember, context matters. If you're visiting with us today, to really get this stuff, it's not that confusing if you understand the context. Jesus has left preaching to the religious leaders. They've rejected him. They've decided he needs to die. So now he's moved on to the masses of Jews that are interested in following and want healing. And he's now telling them the same things. The problem with you Hebrew people is not that God doesn't love you or isn't concerned about you, but you've decided to do the God thing in your own power. And that's not going to work. It hasn't worked. You're not, you're not doing it. It's not happening. The world is not drawn to you. They laugh at you. They're trampling over you. But he continues. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone can praise your heavenly Father. Yes, they like that. Good deeds. We Jews are good at good deeds. Jesus is saying, for those who choose me, you're going to be a light in a dark world and you will shine out by your character some of which I just listed. And the world will see God through you and they'll praise him. Man, I think they must have loved that part. Because the Jews wanted something they could sink their teeth into. The truth is, even if they talked about faith, they really believed in works. And so, they lean in. They're sitting around him on the side of a mountain. And now he's going to explain what must you do to have eternal life. 
He's going to tell them how to work their way into heaven. Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I came. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's laws will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But, not any, but anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, they must have high-fived each other. We picked the right rabbi. He's not going to throw out Judaism, although sometimes he sounds like it. He's going to fulfill it. He's going to help us be great. We are going to set up the kingdom of God. He's a Jew. He's a rabbi. He's the right guy. And so he does. Verse 20. I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Bad feeling came back. They celebrated too soon. Because the reality was, while these folks might have resented to some degree their religious leaders, nobody argued that the Pharisees and the rabbis and the Sadducees did the law the best. Most of these people had been rejected by them at one time or another, declared unclean and unworthy of going into the temple area and offering sacrifices. Most of them had been, over, uh, had, had been, had been mistreated by them, and they had reason to resent them, but nobody doubted their sincerity or even their seriousness with the law. So to hear that unless their righteousness surpasses that of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, they wouldn't enter the kingdom of heaven, had to absolutely freak them out. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus continues. Let me explain what I mean. Verse 21. You have heard our ancestors, or teachers. You have heard uh, our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment by God. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call somebody an idiot, sure glad I've never done that from the pulpit, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice in the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that somebody has sinned against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Wait, what? Did Jesus just say, if I call somebody an idiot, I'm going to hell? Yes, he did. Let that sink in. The law says if you murder. God says if you hate somebody. He isn't done. Verse 27, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anybody who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in this heart. None of you have ever done that. Oh, that was really scary because nobody even giggled. So, I'm so serious about this that if your eye, even your good eye, caused you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Did he just say, hey, did he just say that if we lust, we're going to hell? Where are all the one-eyed people? I mean, he's our rabbi that we've decided to follow is now upping the ante to a level. I mean, I, I mean, how do I know if I'm lusting? I remember, okay, this is Mark talking. I remember as a youth pastor, and I've told you this before, my youth pastor, we used to do beach evangelism in San Diego. I was born and raised there. It's never a good idea for a teenage boy at 15 to do beach evangelism. You might as well send him to a strip club. And we would walk to beach and we would ask, oh, oh, great rabbi, youth pastor Jerry. What's the difference between enjoying the beauty of God's creation and lusting. And remember I told you what he told us? It's the blink. He said, he said, if you blink and look a second time, it's lust. So we would walk up and down the beach looking for which hot girl to evangelize, deciding, and we'd say to each other, don't blink, don't blink, don't blink. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's funny because Nobody really knows where that line is, but you don't know it until you've passed it. And once you've passed it, oops, you're going to hell. I mean, that, that, that is what Jesus is saying. If you don't understand the context, you can go, oh, we're toast, literally. He's not done. Verse 31. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. That was the Jewish law, by the way, for any reason. If a man was tired of his wife, the Jews said, it's okay with God if you just give her a letter of divorce and go on with your life. How twisted had they become? But I say a man who divorces his wife, unless she is seen unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, don't make vows. What? Don't say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. Don't say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of a great king. Don't even say by my own head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond that is from the devil. Remember, they're sitting on the side of a hill. Jesus is teaching, and they all want to go to the kingdom of heaven, okay? Are you kidding me? I don't really mean he, think he means this, right? You've heard the law that says punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Oh, we love that as American conservatives, don't we? But I say... Do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Do you know Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> I mean, if Donald Trump comes for my guns, in my cold, dead hands. We've heard this. He says, don't resist him. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give him your coat too. Oh, this Jesus guy is unhinged. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry two. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. I'm not liking this any more than you are, by the way, just in case you're clear. I don't write it. I teach it. He's not done. You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say love your enemies. <laughs> Pray for those who persecute you. 
In that way, you'll be acting as a true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're only kind to your friends, how are you different than anyone else? Even pagans do that. Now there's a lot of stomachs that are upset and a lot of concern, and people are wondering if they shouldn't go enjoy John the Baptist followers. Jesus isn't done. Look at verse 48. <laughs> the perfect ending of a perfect section. Section one of his message. What? What? What did he say? I have to be divinely perfect? Yeah. So, so, if I actually hate somebody before I realize I'm hating on them, I'm going to hell? Let's forget all that. Let's get to the point. You have to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, that's what it looks like for Jesus to accomplish his purpose in fulfilling the purpose of the law. Part of his task was to clarify God's expectations and standards for those who will inherit the kingdom of God and those who will be thrown into hell. And that standard is perfection, divine perfection. So if you are listening this morning or you're here in this room and you want to work your way to heaven, it's not through baptism. He doesn't even bring that up. It's not through church attendance or membership or being an American citizen. It isn't through giving, although we appreciate that. It isn't through any of those things. It's by being perfect. That's the standard. You can do it. Go for it. Okay, pastor, I'm going to work really hard at being perfect the rest of today. Shut up, wife. You're annoying me. Perfect. I'm going to be perfect. You're going to turn on the news, and you're going to call somebody of some party an idiot. It, it just comes out like it's part of our DNA now. You see, the problem is even if you could attain this level of perfection, you've already blown it by the time you realize you need to get better. So just like an omelet with a rotten egg at its core, you're still in trouble even if the rest of your life you somehow attain the Church of Wells' bad theology of sinlessness. That's the problem with this standard. It's real. This is the standard of working your way into heaven. Now I know that some of you have studied this and you thought that these were lessons on how to live once you're saved. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not the context. He's starting with you Hebrews. You are no longer salty. If you want to be with me, you're going to be the light of the world. And here's what you have to do to be the light of the world. And he raises the ante to telling us what's expected. Perfection. Divine perfection. And he still isn't done. Because once you obtain or find divine perfection, now you have to do good deeds. He is going to now teach the standards of, uh, regarding religiosity, what's expected of you. Chapter 6, verse 1. Watch out. Don't, let your good, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Every time the church does an event to somehow minister to people in the community, what's the first thing they do? They call the press. When we do something good, what's one of the first things we do? We tell everybody about it. We want people to pat us on the back. Well, my heart is pure. You're still doing it. When you give someone to someone in need, 
Don't do it like the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth. When Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth, you should take this to heart. I tell you the truth. They have received all the reward they will ever get. You feel good about giving to a homeless guy? Good for you. God will never reward you for that. You've just got credit. Because you did it and you tooted your horn. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. Well, I don't want to wait for his reward. Then you can be rewarded now. Toot your horn. But that is not honoring to God. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth. That's all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father in heaven knows exactly what you need even before you ask. In fact, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us the food we need. And at this point, they're going, whew, I'm glad we're off that sin stuff. I can do this. I can wrap my mind around humble, quiet, personal, reflective religion. I like this. Right up until Jesus says, verse 12, and forgive us our sins in the same way we've forgiven people who sin against us. There he goes again. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And in case you're not clear that Jesus is making a point with that second to last thing in his prayer, he doubles down and in verse 14. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Which people do I have to forgive? I mean, how, what if somebody's like really, 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 really mean to me? You see, Jesus is, is doing something here. He's preaching a message. He's teaching a lesson to people who are claiming to be his disciples. And he's blowing their minds. Because we're all looking for the same thing. The five things we got to do to be saved. And they thought there was only ten. And even if they thought they were keeping the 10, he's telling them that there's a billion more beyond the 10 because the standard isn't the 10. That's the beginning of the standard. The truth is, it's not about murder, it's about hate. Well, who can do that? So much for shining your light so all can see, right? I hope you understand that Jesus is telling his listeners and us what God expects from us in order to earn the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> if you're trying to work your way to heaven, what I just read and I'm still reading are just a small piece of the things that you cannot do even accidentally and you must do 100% of the time. And I mean 100% of the time, starting from the moment of your birth. Well, kids, kids are innocent. I mean, they don't, God certainly wouldn't hold their sins against them. That's because your theology is bad. It's not people's behavior that's offensive. It's sin. We've lost that today. It's sin that offends God. He's not randomly choosing who he's going to forgive and not forgive. That's not how this works. The truth is we're all condemned, every one of us, because none of us measure up to this. Not a one, except for Miss Julie Wilkie. She measures up. I make that joke because the, I'm making up for Wednesday night. But the truth is, the, tru the truth is, you guys, that, 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 that this was supposed to make them go, I like this part, I don't like this part. You can't take the pieces you like and leave out the rest. That's not how this works. He's God, and he gets to set the standard, and he's telling you, you know, you know the verse, 
for all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard, and we, we, it rolls off our tongue beautifully, and we kind of go, yeah, that standard we all fall short of. This is the standard. He's listing it, and there's not a person in this room that doesn't go, well, there better be a good ending to this, or I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the cardiologist every day and the cancer doctor every afternoon because i got to stay alive. That is, if you really understand hell and separation from God, that's exactly what this should do to us. He's not done squeezing the vice, though. That's not how Jesus works. He's not done. Look at verse 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and just rest destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures up in heaven where moths and steel cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there are the desires of your heart will be also. If you are wealthy, God gave you your wealth to spread it around like manure and causing other things to grow spiritually. You shouldn't be holding on your, to your money. You should be giving it to God's work. Well, that's easy for you to say because you're poor. I'm just telling you what Jesus says. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. Well, how much do I have to give? All of it. Well, how am I going to live? By faith. Last time I checked, you got a paycheck. Mind your own business. Verse 22, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep the darkness is. That is like, like whoa, that's philosophical. My, my mind is blown. Please understand what he is saying is what happens when our religiosity that we claim is spiritual health is actually spiritual arrogance. What happens when your religiosity is a Hebrew or a Baptist or an assembly of God or an evangelical is actually sinful self-reliance. That's what happened to the church of Laodicea. It tells us that Jesus wrote a letter to the church of Laodicea and he said, you are rich and I've offered myself to you, but you say we are wealthy and have need of nothing. Go on to Smyrna. They need you. Jesus said, you should buy for me gold refined by fire because you don't realize you are blind, naked, wretched, and miserable. You want to know why the church is ineffective in this country? Because we have become just like the Jews. We sell a product based upon business principles and not supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. We are fighting a a moral war that God never asked us to engage in. Our job is to reach lost people, not judge them. They know they're in trouble. Not the ones I talk to, then move on to the next. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For you'll hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and, and be enslaved to money or politics, or your appearance, or happiness, or your violated rights, or morality. You can't serve. We can't serve two masters. We're either all in for Jesus, or we're all in for America. We, we have to decide who we're going to serve with our lives. Verse 25, he's not done. This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. 
They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory wasn't dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown out into a fire tomorrow, he'll certainly care for you. Why do you have such little faith? Oh, that one hurt me. That one hurt me. That stung because I'm a worrier. It's my spiritual gift. I claim it for Jesus. And it's sin. This is, by the way, a huge point in the message of Jesus preaching. Why don't you trust me for all of the stuff? Well, what stuff? All of it. From salvation to food to church to stuff. Verse 31, not done. So don't worry about all these things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Ready for the point of all of this? Here it is. Jesus has blown their minds, and it's as quiet on the side of the mountain as it is in this room right now. Do not get bored with this. This is the core of everything, my friends. Do not let this bore you. Well, I like Jesus healing people better. You know what? <laughs> this is more important than that. Because he's about to, after all of that stuff said, he's about to tell them what they need to do. Seek the kingdom of God above everything else. About, above lust, above wealth, above religiosity. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. Don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. I can imagine what's going through his disciples' minds because it goes through mine as I read it. Who can do this? Man, I'm not even at the point where I could pray that way or fast or help others. I'm way back at being perfect like God or not being perfect like God. And you want me to trust you with tomorrow? I'm still back on the day before yesterday. Not done. Jesus never stops talking. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Don't judge others or you'll be judged. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. In other words, if you are critical of somebody else's immorality, God will hold you to your own immorality. The standard you are judging is the standard by which you'll be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your own eye when you can't see past the log in yours? <laughs> Hypocrite. <laughs> now Jesus is just a little bit angry. First get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn back and attack you. Pay attention. Jesus isn't done with his message. And if you only hear the beginning of the message and you miss the middle of the message or the end of the message, you're not hearing the message. Here's his point. Knowing they're frustrated, he looks at them and he says, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you'll find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks the door will be opened. 
parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if you ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people, uh-oh, he just told them now they're all guilty of everything. If you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, if what I just preached scares you, if the standards of my Father to get into his kingdom make you uncomfortable, if it freaks you out, then ask me the question you want to ask. Don't just sit there. Push the issue. What Jesus wants from them and from us is to go, I can't do this. While the church today is telling the world, maybe your sin isn't really a sin after all. The truth is, we have all fallen short Jesus came to make it clear that everybody fell short, no matter how religious or Jewish or Gentile, everybody falls short. Come and chase me. I came to get you, now chase me. Seek, ask, knock, don't give up. Run to me, ask if you want it, I'll give it to you. Even if it's mercy, if you realize right now that you need mercy, seek it, knock on my door, ask it. How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Satan is so good. And, and, and I see it in this story of Jesus' life. People come to Jesus like the guy of Bethesda we studied weeks ago who get healed by Jesus and walk away from him because they got their healing. This text, this text I just read to you is preached all the time by people saying, so ask God for that healing. It's a total misdirection. The point isn't that you get to have two legs that work or a heart that beats well. The point is that when this life is over, your real wealth will be given to you if you come to me for spiritual healing. This whole message was not about getting what you want to be comfortable in life. It was about realizing you can't be good enough and you've got to come to me. You sinful people. He just declared them sinful. He just said, all of the things I just preached make you all unworthy of the kingdom of heaven. So ask me. Well, why doesn't he tell him what to ask? He shouldn't have to. We shouldn't make coming to Jesus easy. If you realize your desperate need for him, you should run to him. But we've turned this into a joining a thing. If you think I'm making that up, I'm cheating. I know what he says next. Matthew 7, verse 12. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all taught in the law and prophets. If you're not clear on what he's talking about, look at verse 13. You can read it. It's right there. This was all about heaven. Every single word. You can enter, enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell, not the song. That was humor to lighten the moment. I thought it was highly effective. The highway to hell is broad and its gate wide open for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is narrow and the road is difficult. And only a few ever find it. And I want to apologize to all of you who are told this would make your life easier. It does not. It will make your next life substantially better. As for this life, it's difficult. And because he knows what they're hearing, he says this. 
Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but really are vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. You could pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yeah, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And husbands start looking at wives and wives start looking at their friends and they all start thinking about the Jewish religious leaders and going, where's the fruit in any of us? Just in case you think Jesus is going to go soft on them, he says, what's the next verse? Verse 21. Not everyone who calls, him, calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't the Sermon on the Mount wonderful? It brings me great peace. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Well, I just heard the will of the Father, and I can't do that. On Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. You see, in the end, it's not whether you know God, it's whether God knows you. Well, okay, that's a great message. I'm glad I visited Carpenter's Way Baptist Church. This isn't Carpenter's Way's message. This is, you realize what I'm doing. I'm just reading it for you, right? So, so if you never come back to Carpenter's Way or you never watch us again or you think I'm an angry, not-so-little man, the, the truth is you still have to deal with Jesus. And this is Jesus. I mean, it, verse 24, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Big finish here. Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on the sand. When the rain and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can build your religious house on Judaism, but I got news for you. When the floodwaters come, it's going to go away. You can build it on your own philosophy, as the Greeks do or the Romans do. You can build it on lots of things, how you feel, how you feed your flesh. But I'm here to tell you, you build it on me, and even though it's difficult and the storms still come, this house will stand. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. I know what some of you are thinking. I've never heard the Sermon on the Mount preached in one or two messages. There's too much to digest. I would like you to go through each of those and explain why he didn't mean what he said so that I can feel good about my relationship with God. I know that every one of us in this room and watching on the Internet want to know that they're going to heaven. Because if what Jesus said is true, we're toast. If Jesus means what he's teaching, I want to be clear here this morning. I'm unworthy and I'm going to hell. Mark Wilkie. Let me be clear. Jesus means what he's teaching. I want to say something on the side that you don't hear very much, but I've been saying now for about a month or two, because I really want you to understand this. Even if God is not merciful, and kind and forgiving. Even if he's arbitrary and you don't like his doctrine or we think his doctrines mean, we will still bow the knee. He's God. We've forgotten that. 
We, we've, we've completely, it's almost like we think that, that we can negotiate truth and we'll ignore some and talk about the others. This is tough stuff. I, I know it. My, I'm sweating. I'm, I'm sweating like you. I look at this and I go, okay, can you give me the, the, the out clause? Where's the clause, preacher? There's got to be a clause or there's no point in us either gathering. The point in us gathering is to, is to figure out Jesus and what he says about himself, about heaven and hell, about right and wrong, and figure out how we get saved because he came to seek and save the lost. How do you do that when everybody's sinful? It's true. Jesus meant what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Sinless perfection by obedience to the law is required to enter the kingdom of God. And God sent Jesus to make sure that we understand exactly what that looks like and this is what it looks like. I want to remind you that at the beginning of the message, Jesus encouraged these Hebrews by saying, I did not come to, re- to, uh, to remove the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Remember that verse early in our message today? I came to fulfill the purpose of the law. Could somebody nod at me if you remember that? Put Romans 3 up there for me, please. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose Oh, Jesus is going to fulfill the purpose of the law. Its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Now you understand the Sermon on the Mount. It's not that complicated. you just got to read the Bible. The purpose of the law is to show you that you're guilty and that you don't measure up. The purpose that Jesus came is to fulfill the purpose of the law. So he just in the Sermon on the Mount did that. Go to the next verse. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Take a breath. I'm not really clear on why we love to plaster the Ten Commandments everywhere. You can't do the Ten Commandments. You couldn't do five. Heck, Adam and Eve couldn't do one commandment. Don't eat from the tree. We constantly push back. And when we think we haven't murdered, we get cut off in traffic and we flip them the one way to heaven sign. We, we, we get upset. We get mad all the time. When we think we've never committed adultery and we're high-fiving our spouses about that, when that young lady walks by and we miss her hand, we've committed adultery. When we don't take abuse well, when we repay evil with evil, we are breaking God's expectations for us and we're in trouble. And that's why Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. So everybody hearing it throughout all of time would go, he expects too much. And he goes, I'm just getting started if you want the law. The truth is, every time you think you measure up, Church of Wells, Baptist, Assembly of God member, Nazarene, self-righteous Christian who accepted Christ at four years of age, I'm here to tell you, you blow it every day and you deserve hell because of it. Well, that's not nice. People aren't gonna come to the church if we talk about hell. Jesus came to fulfill the law's purpose, to stand in front of a group of self-righteous Jews and say, guess what? You've broken every one of the laws. That is, in fact, fulfilling the purpose of the law. So the people go, well, I still want the kingdom of heaven even though I'm a lawbreaker, which is why Romans 3.21 is awesome. But God has now shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the law. There is a clause. It was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's standard, and now you've heard a large piece of it. 
Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. So Jesus is making the case that we all fall short of what's expected to earn our way into heaven. So he sent Jesus to take the punishment for that. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and didn't punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he is himself as fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Well, it's said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount that you've got to obey the Father. Guess what the Father orders you to do? What does the Father order you to do when you realize you've already broken the law that will send you to hell? What is it? What's the answer, family? Put your faith in Jesus. That's an order. Anything short of putting your trust in him will get you hell. That's the obedience. We've got to obey that thing. Put your trust in Jesus. This, uh, where am I? Verse 27. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. Well, duh, we've all committed adultery. Most of us have committed adultery in this room in our hearts. Some of you are blind. We have all murdered somebody because you drive in East Texas and we need to improve our training. What is going on with the merging in East Texas? It's bad. Well, we're just so friendly. We want to stop and give everybody else the right way. Knock it off. Be aggressive. Cut in there. There's a hole. I put it. You all know I'm right. Sometimes friendliness goes too far. We're in trouble. Even our driving's in trouble. And God sent Jesus to say, hold my wine. I like hold my beer better. I'm sorry. It just fits. Do, do you realize this? This is why in the middle of the message, Jesus is going, seek me, ask. You got a question? Hey, hey, you back there. John, ask me the question. I don't know. I don't want to stand out. Come on, Mary. Mary, you're back there. Ask me what you're thinking. What she's thinking is, how can I be saved then? How can I have the kingdom of God? I'm scared. What about my children? Ask me, Mary. Ask me. Knock. Seek. Chase me. Because it won't be soon, long after this that Jesus is going to teach another lesson that whoever's left will hear. They're going to be standing outside of a sheep pen, a round one with one small opening at the door. And they're going to see an under-shepherd laying across that doorway so the sheep don't come in and out. And Jesus is going to talk to his disciples. He's going to take a seat and he's going to say, hey, surround me, listen to this. I'm the gate. Remember he said, you have to enter the gate in this message. He's just beginning the dialogue with these people. The problem with us is we only listen to part of the story. You've got to hear the whole story. I'm the gate. People come into the fold from over the wall. They're liars and thieves. But anyone who enters through me, yeah. Yeah, they don't ever have to leave. I'm the gate. Verse 27 or 28 we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does it mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. There you have it. There you have it. 
Jesus came to fulfill the purpose of the law, and that is first to point out that you don't measure up to his standards, and secondly to say, it's okay, I'm going to die for you. You deserve death. You deserve to be whipped. You deserve to be killed for what you've done. I'm going to be killed on your behalf. I will become the sacrifice in your place, but it is only applied when you admit you're a sinner and you accept his offer to forgive you. Next week, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to wrap this up in a clean bow because we can't say this enough. We can't say this enough, but let me help you wrap your mind around it this morning. Are the expectations and requirement that God has for us as laid out in the Sermon on the Mount accurate? Absolutely. 100% without a doubt, perfection to the standards of God as laid out in this message and way beyond them are required to see the kingdom of heaven. You don't measure up to that but you can still have heaven if you run to Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And by the way, that's the context of that message. Are you tired of worrying spiritually? Come to me. But child of God, if you have gone to him and your life doesn't reflect the, the values that he's laid out here, if you're whoring around, if you're angry and you're not a peacemaker, you are not following God no matter how religious you think you are. I'm not going to say you're not saved. I'm going to say you're not surrendered. Those of you watching on the internet, if your resentment for the family of God because of experiences you had lacks a sense of forgiveness and you refuse to fellowship with other believers, you are not spiritually healthy. I will argue that with you from Scripture. I don't care how good you feel about your spiritual life. The Jews felt good about their spiritual life. This is about putting our life, our, his mercy, our grace, our sin, and our lives in the hands of God, surrendering it all, giving it to him. Jesus asked for nothing less. If you want to follow him, you're going to have to put your selfish ambitions aside, pick up your cross and follow him, and it's going to be painful. I am sorry if you were lied to when you came to Christ. His goal was not to make your life better. It's to reach the lost. That is now our goal, and it will cost us much. Then, when we die, we can go into eternity and inherit the kingdom. Until then, there is work to be done. We are here to work. We are here to die tired. We are not here to accumulate wealth. We are here to spread wealth like manure and make things grow. We are here to serve one another. You are here in this church to serve each other. There is no retirement from service. Every one of you who call this your church home should be actively involved in ministry in this church and outside of this church. Well, I don't, I don't have the time to. There's always time to serve the King of Kings when you realize what He's done for you. You guys, He saved us from ourselves and He didn't have to. All this stuff is true. Stop living for yourself. And if you're living for yourself and there is no guilt or shame or conviction, you may in fact not be bound for heaven. I know that's not usual Mark speak, but it's time to say it. If you can live for yourself in whatever you're doing and you're fine with it and there's no conviction, then you have every reason to question because the fruit of the Spirit is not there, whether or not the Spirit is in fact there. And the difference according to Romans 6, 7, and 8 between a child of God and a child of Satan is the presence or absence of the Holy Spirit. 
That's the only difference. Not church attendance, not baptism, not walking an aisle. And if the Spirit is present in your life, then He is in process right now, no matter where you are, of transforming you. You can be in a strip club as a child of God, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit or ministry will find its way into your life. Because that's our God. You don't get time off, and I don't get time off for bad behavior. He chases and chases and chases and chases. If he's not chasing you, you should be terrified. The Lion of Judah roars. But if you're struggling, he's your lamb. Do you get it? Sermon on the Mount's tough stuff. You guys are going to Brazil. You're not going to Brazil to make Brazilians' life better. You're going to Brazil to tell them that there is a God who loves them in their sinful state and will forgive them if they will obey by faith. You guys go into Guatemala, you're going to do a lot of amazing things. But you are not going there to help their farming improve. You are going there to use farming to teach them that there is an ultimate farmer who is seeking to make them fruitful. Those of us who are staying here in East Texas, you do not work for your employer. You work for the King of Kings, whether you like your employer or not. Serve them well. And in about 70 years, we'll all go home. Some of us sooner than others. Some of you need to stop eating so much deep fruit fat. It's good, but okay. I want to take a breath. Everybody take a breath. Because I do not want you leaving here going, Mark's on fire today. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's all I did was read it for you. Explain a little bit. I don't like it any more than you do. But I am in love with it. It's so good. It's really good to be reminded that God loved me enough where he sent his son to die for me. And as he hung on the cross, he was thinking about me. How do I know that? Because John 17 said he prayed for me. He prayed for you. So stop being a Christian and follow Jesus. Seriously. Follow Jesus. Well, this world, what do I do with my gay neighbor? Invite him for dinner. Invite him for dinner. What do I do with the person that cuts me off in traffic? Thank God for grace and drive him into the ditch. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> we love you, Lord. But even more than that, we're thankful that you love us. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount that reminds us that you have been better to us. You are a good father. You're better than us as fathers because you give good gifts to your children. So may we ask for good gifts. May we seek and knock and chase you even while we struggle and we trip and we fall and we mess up. Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for righteousness that is imputed, declared on us because of the work of Jesus. And I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room or my friends and those who are watching on the Internet who have been in church their whole life but have never known you. May today be the day of salvation. May today be the day they meet the King of Kings, not the Baptist King. So, Father, as we go into Bible study, I pray that our conversation will be vibrant, educational, encouraging, and repentant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Communion next Sunday. Have a great Bible study. is going to start in five minutes. If you're visiting and you'd like to go to one, we will be glad to take you one. Come talk to me and I'll help you find one.